welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome to the first episode of A Congruent Life. I'm Andy Gray, and I'm very grateful that you've joined us for the premiere of this project. A Congruent Life is a project about telling stories of authenticity. What is authenticity, you might ask? That's a really great question, and a common one that I ask the people that are participating in this project. It's quite illuminating to hear their responses and to see the different things that living a congruent or authentic life means to them. A big part of this project is the audio podcast, like you're listening to now. Through these podcasts, I hope to share some inspiring conversations with some very interesting people. To kick us off, I'm talking today with Brian Doyle. Brian Doyle is the editor of Portland Magazine at the University of Portland, and the author of 13 books spanning many genres, including the award-winning novel Mink River, and story collections named Grace Notes and Bin Laden's Bald Spot. Brian, welcome to A Congruent Life. Well, I'm honored to be asked. Let's just jump in by asking, how would you define authenticity? Um, somebody, writers are often asked, um, what is the theme of their work? Like whenever I visit a high school or a grade school without fail, one of the eager holy children will say, well, what's the point of your work? And what is all your, what are all your books about? And, and so usually that's a question you should run screaming in the other direction, right? But um, it seems to me that in my case, it's grace under duress. That, that's the great theme and, and sort of giving darkness the finger. And so um, a, a sort of insistence on defiant hope um, and crazy courage against all the um, evidence, right? And so I think authenticity to me is is kind of trying to remain um, a man and a story catcher uh, of substance rather than illusion. Um, you know, I, 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 I have many strange theories. One of them is that the, I think humility is the final frontier. But I, I think authentic is... Um, it's like it's like when you touch good wood, you can hear the right, you can hear that music of true wood. I, I, I like that in people, and I think we spend so much time with masks and disguises that I'm a real student of people who are just saying it like it is and speaking directly from their hearts. And in my view, life is short, so why not be straightforward with each other if, as much as possible? So authenticity, I think, is pretty much speaking straight. You know, and humor. Humor is a great way to speak. It's a great language. I love that phrase that you used, defiant hope. Could you maybe give some examples of that? Uh, well, the one I end up talking about all the time, three of my friends were roasted to white ash on September 11th. And, um, you know, for a long time, like everybody else, I, I was uh, enraged and helpless and speechless. And, and then more and more I realized that partly poked by my children who said, well, Dad, you know, if God gives you a tool and you don't use your tool, that's a sin, right? You're always telling us that. And, Dead. You only have one tool. <laughs> you know, you say so yourself. No offense. And uh, so, in my case, I, I paid particular attention to stories of people who ran into the towers and people who ran up to put the fire out that you couldn't possibly put out on this earth, and people who carried each other down the stairs, and the teacher who ran out of the ash with a child on her shoulders, and and the couple that reached for each other and held hands as they jumped off the tower. Those stories, to me, are 
bigger and deeper and wilder and cooler than any kind of murder stories. Murder is an old story. It's a stupid story. You know, it's in, you know, Bin Laden, among his many problems, was he was a poor student of history. You know, he thought that killing people would convert them to your belief. That's stupid. Mm. You know, I get bigger, better stories than that. So, in a lot of ways, I think my job is to tell stories of, of uh, you know, hope and grace and humor um, against all sense and evidence and logic and reason, you know. I mean, if we just applied reason to everything, we would we'd never get married. <laughs> we'd never have countries. We we toss our religions out the windows, and and uh, you know. But I think I, I guess I insist on the stuff that doesn't make sense. To me, that seems really um, brave and correct. The more it doesn't make sense, the more count me in. So, how did you get into this world? How, how did you become a storyteller yourself? Well, I slid out of my mother moaning, you know, a long time ago. In my case, my dad uh, is a wonderful writer. My dad's 92. Uh, he's a newspaper man. Um, he's a lovely essayist. He wrote his newspaper column for 30 years in New York City. And my mom was a teacher, and we had a big Irish Catholic family. So, and so I grew up Irish, American, in a large family, and and the child of two story catchers. So, so in my view, I got a great um, stimulating education as a writer simply by being a child soaked in story and saga and tall tale and and to grow up catholic is to be soaked in miracle and, and you know the, the pregnancy of wonder and uh so in a lot of ways i think i had no choice but to be a writer i wanted to be a professional basketball player but i'm only five foot ten so and then this this phrase story catcher uh can you talk a little bit more about what that is and, and what you see that role being well, we, you know, we use the term storyteller um, sort of casually, and I think, I guess I think there's a bigger play than that. Um, I think that we actually are composed of stories. You know, we we are sort of walking collections of stories, um, and um, I, I like to try to um, ask people to share their stories with me, and then I share them with other people. That's my job. I'm not really a storyteller as much as I am a story sharer. And and so I think that that's a holy and nutritious and substantive um, transaction. And and the more stories we tell of substance and the less we tell that our lies and illusions, like politics often is, I think that we, you know, evolution inches forward an inch, you know, the when we tell stories that matter, rather than stories that are just catharsis or performance or, um, you know, clearly <laughs> designed to recruit money to the teller, um, I think we do better. So, story catcher. It's also based on an old Irish. Uh, there's a Gaelic word, shenicky, which means uh, story catcher. Basically, you're the you're the story recipient. You're the live wire. And in old Irish culture, that was actually a job in every town, in every village. There was a Shinnecke whose job was to be the person who caught and remembered the stories and shared them. So my father says we've been paid liars for many centuries. So what's an example of a, a story that matters today? Well, something that might be on your mind today or this week? Well, actually this week, you know, I lived in Boston for many years. And so, you know, I was horrified by, you know, some slime setting out to injure people. He, he murdered an eight-year-old child. You know, he murdered a 29-year-old woman. He murdered a, a, a young lady in her, in her 20s from China. You know, and, and again, it's the same thing, man. I mean, 
you know, and everybody is horrified, and everybody, and my mind goes right to little tiny things like the fireman carrying children away from their running with children in his arms out of that spot, you know, and and the people who were in the marathon who kept right on running, they ran right past the finish line and ran to the hospital to give blood. Okay, you know that's a story that matters. You know, so to the to the idiot slime who did this, I would say, hey, you know. You, you you think you're telling me a story that matters? You think your story matters? You think you drew attention to your story? You're a fool. I got a story for you. People kept running after 26 freaking miles. They ran right to the hospital to help out somebody else. That's a story that matters, you idiot. You know, so, you know, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm real, I'm, I try to be real attentive to the, to the little stories that are not little, you know. I mean... All the things that you could do that would be sensible in that scenario, and some people immediately did the right thing, man. They went and they reached for each other. Those are the stories that matter. What would be some examples of stories that were personally significant to you and key parts in your own life journey? Well, I started a reading the other night saying uh, it took me a long time to begin to grow up. You know, I was probably, I think I was probably 28 years old when I suddenly realized it's not all about me. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> That was a huge bummer because it was about maybe for 28 years. But that actually was a real wake-up call. Um, it made me a much better man and a much better writer You know, to realize, oh, wait a minute, everybody else is more interesting. So why don't I ask them what they think and rather than just keep trying to tell, pull stuff out of me. You know, I mean, as an essayist, I think often the very best personal essays are ones in which the first, you know, Singular first person pronoun doesn't appear. You can you can catch and tell somebody, you can catch and share somebody's story, and of course a lot of your salt and music comes through the stories that you choose and the way that you tell them. And uh, you know, in my case, I often lean on my family. I had a very happy and strange and funny family life. I mean, with some some roaring oceans of pain in it. You know, four of my brothers are dead, and four I, I still have two. You know, but. Uh, but you, you bring stories to bear against the darkness. That's sort of what we do in life. You mentioned that uh, an important role in your life is is being a father. How would you say that being a father has, you know, the stories that come along with that, how has that impacted your sense of authenticity or your place in the world? Well, it's the... Uh, I mean, the, the best thing that ever happened to me was that a woman said, yeah. She didn't say yes when I proposed. She said, yeah, but... Um, but the the thing that changed me the most, I think, really shoved me um, deeper and wider was having children. Was was having children descend from the sea of the stars. You know, for one thing, it destroys your ego totally. You, you can't possibly be a father and think that you're cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, people throw up in their shoes. You know, and, and uh, I've had my teenage kids tell me I'm the worst dad ever. You know, and on a regular basis. <laughs> so. Um, children destroy your ego. Children make you realize that love is a lot bigger than you ever conceived it was. You know, you can, you can, um, your marriage or your relationship with your spouse or lover can slide apart and dissolve, um, which is painful. But, but you can't not be a dad. It seems to me, and and so I rank my duties in life as dad, 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 husband. You know, and the writer's about ninth, but. You know, first I'm a dad, and then I'm everything else, it seems to me. You know, I'm responsible for them. I begged the coherent mercy for them. 
and uh, I want to do the best I can to shape them and and give them all the tools and and then be man enough to let go. You know, that was actually one of the big surprises of their teenage years was that you have to actually let go. You have to let them make their own mistakes, and it's hard, I think, for it's hard for dad to watch, but it's like watching small car crashes. So in addition to your, your family roles, uh, you are a writer, and you published uh, many books in different genres, and you work today as a, the editor of Portland Magazine. How how is being a writer part of the the role that you play in this world? How how is that uh, that writing world contributing to your happiness today? Um, well, at the lowest level, it's, it's a, a friend of, a friend of mine in Boston, George Higgins, used to call writing a benign neurosis, a phrase I never forgot. And and so at the lowest level for me, it's a way for me to grapple with the world. I mean, uh, you know, I I'm I'm a story junkie, a story addled. Um, a story swarmed man, and writing is my way to um, catch and share stories. It's a, it's a language for me, sort of. You know, I think of it very much as a craft, and I never think about myself as an artist, but I do think very much about the craft of writing. And so I want to like sense and smell and recruit and and catch and lure stories as much as possible, and then kind of shape them and plane them as they go past and. And so writing is the way I do that. You know, I can't paint, and I'm no good at sculpture, and I'm a rotten dancer. And, but I can I can write a decent sentence, you know. And so if I string enough good, clean sentences together, then I got I caught a cool story that was never quite in that order in that way before. And I still have sort of a childish glee at the at the uh, carpentry of writing, I suppose. You know, when you finish an essay, you know. It was all those words were never quite shepherded together in that order before, and I have sort of a, just a childish thrill, like whoa, that was cool. <laughs> and then you know, as a writer, you get you know, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters and, uh, from people who read your books and your essays, and, and it's just deeply moving. You know, I mean, they're very funny. Some of the the lunatic fringe letters are hilarious, but the but the ones where somebody says really with total passion, you know, thank you for what you did, man. It hit me right in the heart and it hit me right when I needed it. You know, you get a letter like that. You know, you feel like, yeah, I'm doing the job I'm supposed to do. So I feel very lucky. Uh, I wanted to touch uh, just briefly on on two points that you made earlier. Uh, first, uh, about humility. Um, how how does humility play a role in who you are today? Um, it's the it's the it's the highest achievement it seems to me it's the final frontier. Um, I'm a real student of people who are very good at what they do but don't think that they're cool. And and to be accomplished at something, to be a good craftsman, to be um, practiced and um, facile at the craft that you um, do, whether you chose it or it chose you, but to not think that you're cool because of that strikes me as the, the proper balance of um, confidence and lack of cockiness, right? So I, I think that to let go, to do the best you can and then surrender, um, seems to me to be the, the epitome of maturity, to to be able to just do the best you can with the tools that you have and not think that it um, makes you cooler or better or taller, <laughs> Um, I think is sort of the final frontier. You know, I'm always grappling with confidence and arrogance. You know, there's a thin line, a thin dark line between those two things. 
And so often we slip over it. I think you know you think that you're neat, and and you want to. You know your ego. The ego is a it's a fast car to drive, and so I'm always very sensitive to it. I want to be I want to be a good dad and a good husband and a good editor and and a good citizen and son and friend and brother and, and a good writer, and but not think that that it makes me any better than anybody else. It doesn't. You know, I just got lucky. I, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm trying to do it as best I can. And, you know, what what um, glitter accrues to that? Well, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the other thing that I heard you say earlier was, was talking about humor. Could you maybe expand a bit on on humor and what role that might play? Well, I think it's uh, actually been fascinated by this lately. The, the University of Portland, where I work, just started um, several humor scholarships. Kids get scholarships in exchange for doing a humorous project. And, and we're just starting this huge humor project, people teaching classes in humor. And, and the whole point of it, um, I, I got to play in the beginning of it because I think it's crucial. I think it's a really useful tool, real humor. And I'm not talking about the snide, supercilious, sneering aspect of our culture. There's a default ironic um, uh, attitude in our in pop culture, which I think is um, silly and childish. You know, everything is not ironic. There are things that are real and genuine and cool that really matter, and, and that, that you can't really make fun of very well. You know, not everything doesn't mean anything, right? And so, I think that humor, real humor, is communal. It's nutritious. It's um, it's a great way to give violence the finger. You can't be punching anybody or killing anybody when you're laughing. You know, I, I thought of this particularly in my case with Bin Laden. Bin Laden murdered three of my friends and, you know, roasted children. He roasted children on the planes and laughed. He thought it was funny. And and to me, you know, I finally realized he was that kind of a stuffed shirt guy, arrogant bonehead. And the one, the one thing that would needle him, the one thing that would really annoy him is people laughing at him. So I wrote a series of people, a series of essays making fun of him. You know, and, and and would mail them to him. Osama bin Laden, Pakistan. <laughs> you know, but you, real humor, I think, is is very is a very um, it's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful weapon, I think, against despair and darkness and sadness. You know, humor is such a binding agent. You know, when you laugh together, you know this in your own life. When you're sitting with a buddy. And you just lose it laughing so hard that your stomach hurts and your cheeks hurt and you just are helplessly laughing. Isn't that a great, sweet, wild, holy thing? I mean, it just is such a such a naked, connective thing. Laughter, real laughter, that's that's sparked by um, the juxtaposition of unexpected things, or you know, not the kind where you laugh at somebody because they fell down, it's, or you sneer at somebody like it, or you know, like. Reality television to me seems like a total ridiculous joke. It's just people laughing at other people making fools of themselves. That's not funny, I think. That's sort of embarrassing. Can you give an example maybe of a, a story uh, where humor played an important role in teaching you something? Well, I think I'd probably go back to my children, you know. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was pretty cool before I had children, and then my children... Um, one thing that fascinated me when they were little is maybe just weep with laughter on a continual basis was the way that they were grappling with language. You know, they they sort of made me realize that language is a verb. Language is a quicksilver living thing that changes all the time and can be applied in any way, shape, or form 
to all kinds of situations. You know, we're not really in charge of it. And, and I, thought, I thought this was particularly funny because I'm a professional editor. I mean, my job in some senses is to be a mechanic and a, and a censor for language. And it was a real wake-up call having children. I realized, whoa, there's a lot of American languages. <laughs> you know, and none of us speak English. We're all speaking American here, for one thing. And there's lots and lots and lots of ways to play with it. It's a playful living thing, language. And I think uh, the, the laughter I got from my children grappling headlong with language was a real wake-up call for me about humor and language as a writer. I heard you tell a fascinating story about your encounter with the Dalai Lama. I wonder if you might tell that story briefly. Oh, God, it's such an embarrassing story. I love to tell it in my readings because it proves I'm an idiot. Um, and uh, it's, that's always a refreshing thing to remember. You know, and, um, he, His Holiness, had come here to the University of Portland some years ago, and we were going to take a photograph with everybody who ever lived, apparently. And uh, so we set up a little green room with a you know, white photographic screen for background and little X's on the floor where people, he would stand and everybody would step in one by one to have their picture taken with him. And, and so I was waiting in this little green room by myself. The photographer wandered off somewhere. And uh, we forget that the Dalai Lama is surrounded by an entourage of monks. There's lots and lots of Buddhist monks around him and State Department agents, etc. But he's got a, you know, uh, he's a a big touring group that goes with him. And, and so there's a lot of monks milling around, you know, and so I'm standing there by myself and, and in bustles this monk and he comes right up to me and says, how you doing? And I said, good, how you doing? And he goes, good, who are all these people on the walls? And it turned out this was the University of Portland's Hall of Fame room, Sports Hall of Fame. So there's mostly football players on the walls. We used to have a great football team in the old days. And uh, I said, well, they're mostly football players. We have the best women's soccer team in the country, so... About five years from now, we'll all, all women on the walls, but right now it's mostly football players. And the monk says, well, that's too bad because soccer is the greatest sport of all. I said, well, no, it isn't. Basketball is the greatest sport of all. And he replies, laser quick, real real intent guy. Um, maybe you didn't hear me. I said, soccer is the greatest sport of all. I actually said to him, maybe you didn't hear me, pal. <laughs> um, soccer is a great sport, but nobody scores, whereas basketball, it was a wonderful, sinuous, quicksilver sport. And everybody scores all the time. Very generous sport. And as I spoke those words into the air, and they fell into his ears, I realized that it was the Dalai Lama I was speaking to. I hadn't recognized him. And, and I had a moment of absolute shivering horror that I just called him pal, for one thing. And, and to his credit, he burst out laughing. And, so, and he has this most beautiful, roaring laugh, the most infectious laugh I think I've ever heard in my whole life. So he's roaring with laughter and in floods the entourage. And I'm standing there thinking, I don't believe this. I just had two minutes alone with one of the greatest spiritual visionaries of all time in my species. And I completely punted and argued with him about sports. Unbelievable. And, uh, you know, so... But my sister, who's a Buddhist nun, has often said, well, you know, look on the good side. He probably found it deeply refreshing to actually have somebody argue with him about something. I mean, most of the time in his life, it's your holiness this and your reverence that. And, and to actually have a guy-to-guy -guy conversation, a cheerful argument about sports, is probably the highlight of his day. <laughs> so, so I console myself with that thought sometimes. What did you learn from that experience with him? Well, I'll never argue with the Dalai Lama, for one thing. <laughs> Um, 
No, I thought it was refreshing. You know, I mean, and as a friend of mine has said, I, I often I would kick myself for years after that thing. Unbelievable! I could have talked to this guy about all the things I'm obsessed with. You know, grace and joy and pain and humor and mercy and 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 how how can you and defiant hope and and defiant courage and how can you stay how can you laugh like that when your whole country's been eaten and you'll never see your friends and family again and he'll never go home. You know, and how can he be so funny and relaxed and forgiving I, I, it just fascinates me you know and 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 i could have talked to him about those things and a friend of mine the other day observed but you did didn't you get it you did you actually did have that conversation with him of course he talked about joy mm-hmm. you know you were talking about the supple physical joy of sports and the roaring laughter between two guys who got caught by surprise you know by by a humorous moment but don't you get it you did have a graceful conversation with him and that's been that's been a good sandwich for me to eat lately. So, what are you up to these days, Brian? What's uh, what's next for you? Uh, actually, I've been fascinated by novels. I finally wrote a big hawking novel a couple of years ago, and uh, after many years of you know collections of essays and poems and and uh, nonfiction books, and and it's been really fascinating to, to to go around. I mean, the book came out three years ago, and I'm still going every, every week. I do a reading or a book club meeting or something for the novel. So I'm fascinated by how people read novels. People, you know, as with my essays, um, I would get letters from people say, "Hey, your your essay hit me in the heart. Thank you." But with a novel, people live in it. You know, you you live in it for two weeks. You live in this town that I wrote about, and you live with these people. You know, they're in your house for two weeks, and and so I'm just fascinated by the different um, dynamics of of long fiction. So so I wrote another big honking novel um, that will come out next year. And then I wrote a little novel, I think, just as a sort of reaction to writing big novels. So, so one of my ambitions is to write one of everything. I'd like to try every genre. It's like having a fleet of cars when I drive all of them. <laughs> Seems like you're well on your way that way. Uh, what are the titles of those novels? Uh, Mink River came out three years ago. That's a, uh, a novel about a town on the Oregon coast. Kind of a headlong novel. Very interesting novel. Actually, got one, got one award as a novel of the year in the United States of America, which I thought was pretty cool. And then uh, I have a novel called The Plover coming out next year, a sea novel. I was one to write a, a sea novel. I think because when I was a kid, I read so much Conrad and Stevenson and Kipling and Jack London and Kantiki and you know that kind of stuff crawled into my head. I think so. The Plover is the name of the boat on which all the action occurs. And then, uh, then I have a couple of collections of essays coming out this year, too. But essay collections are fun. You just I kind of gather all my essays every couple of years and say, all right, who wants to be with who? And what excites you about the future? Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody asked me, um, we were having kind of a dark conversation, and somebody said, what do you think? And I said, you know what I think? I think, I think kids are going to do it. I think these kids, I, I work for a university. I see kids all the time. I have my own children. I love visiting schools with kids, and and I think that kids' creativity is going to save the world. I think it's going to happen. You know, I don't think we're going to punt totally. We've fouled the world. We have we have brought unimaginable violence to the innocent. Um, but I think that kids' dreaming and ideas and creativity is going to do it. I think they're going to figure out a way to heal the broken world. I think they're going to figure out a way to put war in a museum. I think they're going to make violence a joke. I think they're going to do it. You know, I have high hope for the little squirming mammals I see all the time around me.
Is there any final thing that you'd like to leave the listeners with on the subject of authenticity or happiness? What's the one thing that you'd like to tell them? Well, geez, you know, laugh your brains out. <laughs> For one thing, uh, you know, find every opportunity to giggle and do it. Uh, it's a holy act. I think it's a form of prayer, to be honest. But I guess another thing I, I would suggest gently, there's a, there's a lovely word in Gaelic called mishnak, uh, which is mistranslated as fortitude. I think really what it means is hold hands and, and, and give darkness the finger. Hold hands and we'll go together. You know, don't quit. Stay with the boat. Come on, here we go. Hold hands. Give darkness the finger. On we go. Take a step together. Hold the hands. And, and so if I could say one thing to everybody who is having this inflicted upon them, I would say, hey, Mishnuck, you know, let's hold hands and stay in the game. Let's go. Here we go. It's a great world. You know, we get the one. Let's go, man. Let's bring our tools, bring our humor, bring our our joy, bring our crazy hope, bring your defiant courage against the darkness and say, hey, darkness, screw you. Let's go. Come on, teammates. Come with me. That sounds like a fantastic place to leave it. So, Brian Doyle, thank you very much for the conversation. Sure. It was an honor. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian Doyle. On the website at congruentlife.net, I'll put some relevant links to Brian's work alongside this episode. Since this is episode number one, you can access the audio and the associated notes by going to acongruentlife.net slash one, just the number one in your web browser. Thanks so much for listening to the show and supporting the A Congruent Life Project. I'm very appreciative that you're here. There's some interesting guests coming up on our future episodes. I hope that you'll find those interviews both inspiring and fun. If you would, please stop by the website at acongruentlife.net and join our email list. I'll be sure to keep you in touch with what's going on with Incongruent Life. And I appreciate your feedback on the show and your suggestions for future guests. Please drop me a line at feedback at acongruentlife.net. Again, thank you very much, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at a congruent life.net. See you next time.